Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what are Northern Ireland's abortion laws and how may they be changing soon? I've been racking my brain for the correct word to describe what Northern Ireland is going through politically right now. Unstable seems at once both overstated and not quite enough. Although there is a Brexit deal now, there are still a lot of questions about what life will be like for those living in Northern Ireland. And on top of that, there is still no Stormont Assembly. And there hasn't been for over two and a half years. There has been a little but not much talk of direct rule, um, but that is probably set to change soon because over the summer, MPs in Westminster voted for an amendment that would extend same-sex marriage and abortion laws to Northern Ireland unless power sharing was restored by the 21st of October 2019. That's obviously in a few days' time. But what does it all mean? When will we see change in Northern Ireland? Does the amendment have wider implications for how laws are made for Northern Ireland? To answer these questions specifically about the abortion issue, our executive producer and deputy editor of the Journal.ie, Christine Bohan, is back in studio. And we're joined online by solicitor and volunteer with Alliance for Choice, Sarah Creighton. Hi, all. Christine, going to turn to you for a history lesson first. Um, Northern Ireland has different rules to the rest of the UK on abortion. What are they and how did that happen? Let's start by looking at what happened in 1967, which is when abortion was legalised in the rest of the UK. Um, So it was introduced as a private member's bill by a 29-year-old MP at the time called David Steele. Uh, He was a member of the Liberals. There was a heated debate about it and there was a free vote on it, which meant that MPs could vote in... They didn't have to vote based on how their party was voting. They could choose how they wanted to vote. Um, And so the Abortion Act was passed by the House of Commons in October 1967, came into effect in April 1968, but it has never applied in Northern Ireland. So at the time, the Parliament of Northern Ireland at Stormont was making its own laws. Uh, It was dominated by the UUP, the Ulster Unionist Party at the time. And there was no appetite among the members of the Parliament to follow the example of the rest of the UK. So essentially, they just ignored it. There was no mention. There was no discussion. It just, it didn't happen. Um, Stormont collapsed in 1972 and directorial came in from Westminster. Um, But UK governments were reluctant to ever legislate for Northern Ireland's abortion law. And this dragged on and dragged on. There was a Conservative health minister in 1990 who said that no Northern Ireland MP had ever called for changes to the abortion law and that had guided their actions or their their lack of actions. So so technically the 1861 law, which is the Offences Against the Person Act, that's still in place in Northern Ireland, uh, which makes abortion a criminal offence with a potential penalty of life imprisonment. Is there anything that's legal right now? now in Northern Ireland in terms of accessing abortions? Yeah, so abortion is permitted in Northern Ireland if a woman's life is at risk or if there's a permanent or serious risk to her mental or physical health. So that's what is allowed. The ones that aren't, the reasons that it isn't allowed is for cases of, say, socioeconomic reasons, fatal fetal abnormalities, rape, incest. And this would be quite different to the Republic of Ireland where it's abortion is allowed up to 12 weeks, but it's allowed later if there's a risk of serious harm or to the life of the pregnant woman or if there's been a diagnosis of a fatal fetal abnormality. And that's similar to the law in England Scotland and Wales where an abortion can be carried out up to a 24 week limit uh, and beyond that in certain circumstances um, in Northern Ireland women do have freedom to travel but that's that's the situation that's the difference between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK So practically that mental health when I just remember a lot of the debate down here about that mental health clause that doesn't hasn't widened abortion out to kind of a more general um, access It hasn't there were 12 abortions in Northern Ireland hospitals between 2017 and 2018 um, we know 
that just over 1,000 women travelled to England, Scotland and Wales in 2018. It was those 1,053 travelled to England and Wales specifically and just fewer than 10 went to Scotland that year. Um, I suppose there's a bit of a, a black hole there and that we don't know how many women were buying pills online, which is something that came up an awful lot in, in the Republic of Ireland's own debate around uh, abortion uh, prior to the passing of the law last year. And also at the same time, at the beginning of next year, we'll have more of an idea of how many women from the North have travelled to the Republic to access abortion services here. So we don't know yet. Obviously, the figures for 2019 will know that at the start of 2020. You mentioned there that um, MPs in Westminster said, you know, there, there has never been appetite from um, Northern Ireland, uh, from people lobbying us to, to change uh, the rules there. How has that changed? We obviously had MPs acting in this summer to get that amendment over the line. So what happened? It's a really interesting one, especially if you're interested in like the wonkery or the, the nerdiness of what parliaments can do. Um, there was a very technical bill that was going through the House of Commons and it was about budgets and elections for the Northern Ireland Assembly. And Labour MPs attached amendments to this. So they saw this as an opportunity. One amendment that was attached to it was to do with same-sex marriage, which would extend it to Northern Ireland, which is the one part of the UK where same-sex marriage isn't allowed yet. And then the second, a second amendment that was attached to it would extend abortion. So the Abortion Act to Northern Ireland in the way that it already exists for the rest of the UK. And both of these were free votes um, because they were viewed as matters of conscience, which meant that MPs could vote regardless of how their party was, was telling them to vote. Um, there was an interesting nugget where the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, who was John Penrose, warned MPs that this would cause a lot of complications to pass these two pieces of legislation right before he voted in favour of both amendments. And both of these amendments did pass. Um, the same-sex marriage passed overwhelmingly uh, by 383 votes to 73. But more relevant to what we're talking about here, the, the abortion amendment passed by 332 votes to 99. So it's a huge, you know, that's a big majority there. And what was interesting is that the MP that brought that legislation for abortion um, was Stella Creasy, who's a Labour MP who represents uh, Walthamstow in East London. And she spoke about this as being an issue about rights rather than about devolu- devolution. Um, so Conor McGinn, the MP who brought the same-sex marriage amendment said you can't have people in Northern Ireland not having the same rights as people in the rest of the UK. This isn't a matter of usurping any democratic institution. And Stella Creasy kind of echoed that by saying that devolution is not segregation. Human rights can't be devolved. So they were very much pitching this as a human rights issue. Just uh, on a kind of technical question there, this the, the bill that they were attaching it to, was that just a procedural one because there is no Stormont? Exactly, because Stormont hasn't sat now for two years, seven months, so over a thousand days. And so, you know, Westminster is reluctant to, um, you know, to bring in any kind of direct rule or to do things that would usurp, um, usurp the role of, of Stormont. But at the same time, when you don't have... A, a, um, a, a parliament sitting for that lo- or an assembly sitting for that length of time there are still things that need to be passed by the government in order in order for somewhere to function Sarah, Christine explained there what uh, Stella Creasy and, and, and McGinn kind of argued for why this was not about devolution but what do Northern Ireland's uh, MLAs, the, the members of the Legislative Assembly there think of Westminster legislating in this way for Northern Ireland? Uh, well it's been quite interesting um, I think um the, the much smaller parties, the Alliance Party, the Green Party, um, are quite comfortable, I think, with Westminster stepping into the fore here. Um, the DUP are obviously completely opposed to this and that they really see Westminster's behaviour as a sort of imposition. And they see that they see that this has been imposed on Northern Ireland. Um, the SDLP, quite curiously, they're very much in favour of the equal marriage aspect of it, but they haven't really come to a position on the abortion issue. Um, 
that's really because the SDLP has a conscience issue for their members. And I know certainly some of their younger members are very much in favour of it, but there's there's still, I think, some disquiet maybe further up the party. Um, the Austrian Unionist Party, I think, um, again, it's, it's, a, it's a conscious position for them. I think some of them are happy with it. Some of them, I think, are a little bit uncomfortable. Um, Sinn Féin, um, their position has been quite interesting because they, I think they're, they are pro-choice um, up to an extent. Um, and I think that some of their members, I think, their base is really quite uncomfortable with it, but some of them are also, the younger members are also very much in favour of it. And obviously the party leaders are very much in favour of it, but they are saying, they do say that their preference, and I, I suppose this is also true for some of the other parties as well, their preference is that this would be dealt with by the Northern Ireland Assembly, because obviously Sinn Féin have a long history of opposing Westminster um, legislating for Northern Ireland. So I think though there is there is talk, and I suppose it is rumour and speculation that, that you know, for some of the parties, particularly some of the parties of the DUP, that if this passes, if this gets this issue over and done with, that if it's dealt with basically by Westminster and if it's dealt with by Westminster, the Assembly can't really amend primary legislation that comes from Westminster, that if this issue is done, then then, then it's done and dusted and it can move on. And as long as the parties that are opposed to it don't have their name on it, that that should be fine. And then they can say, well, look, we didn't introduce this. So it's, but it's taken quite a long time for the parties to get to this point, um, you know, some of the parties have only recently become um, quite pro-choice, or at least even did uh, even adopted a, a conscience position, and they were quite previously pro-life. Um, Sinn Féin and the SDLP have were all quite historically pro-life, as well as the DUP and, and the Austrian Unionist Party as well. I don't think I've ever been really particularly openly pro-choice, um, but the Alliance Party even um, it also has a conscience position. It should be said, but I think quite a lot of its members are quite openly pro-choice. So it's a real mixed bag, I think. So. That politicians have constantly been out of step with with people in Northern Ireland. I think they are majority in favour of it, and it's not really an orange and green issue because I think you know most people across the divide are seemingly quite comfortable with this coming in. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. How fraught an issue is this in 2019 in Northern Ireland? I would say it is still quite, um, in some aspects, I think for most people, you know, I think a lot of people say this is just Northern Ireland moving into the 21st century. I think they think, you know, that this this is a long time coming. Um, many people have waited years and years for this to happen. And um, But it, abortion is still, it is still quite a touchy subject here. And I, I know that even from my own family, um, you know, it is still quite, it is still quite difficult to be pro-choice in some parts of Northern Ireland. Because there have been quite similar to the Republic of Ireland's um, experience, there have been a lot of court cases in Northern Ireland that have kind of brought the issues to the fore. Can you run us through what has happened through the courts? Yes. So, I mean, the, the I'll not give a huge long history, but said in, back in 1939, there was a case of Bourne, which really established the sort of common law legal principles about when an abortion will be lawful, but it is very, very restrictive. But up to the most recent cases um, to deal with those cases, to do with the abortion laws, in 2015, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission um, took a case to the Belfast High Court to um, say that the laws were incompatible with Article 8 of the European Convention. Um, at that time in 2015, um, Justice Horner said that it was... Um, incompatible with the European Convention and he made a declaration of incompatibility and that was with regard to uh, fatal fetal abnormality and sex crime. Um, they, but the case then went to the Court of Appeal. Um, the Court of Appeal disagreed and they did a very strange thing where they had three separate judgments basically. So they were divided on the issue of, of European uh, Convention compliance. One judge agreed with the Human Rights Convention's provision. Uh, another judge thought that the common law, so that's the Bourne judgment that I mentioned, that that actually allowed for fatal, fatal fatal abnormality to be allowed, so it wasn't a clear decision really, and it, and it wasn't. It was, but then the case then went to the Supreme Court in 2018, 
and, and there was again the Human Rights Commission um, challenge and then what happened in that case is that the Attorney General John Larkin made an argument that the Human Rights Commission didn't have standing to take the case. He said that uh, the Human Rights Commission needed a victim to take forward the case. Um, now, the Supreme Court, uh, unfortunately, agreed with them on that, and they said the Human Rights Commission didn't have standing. But what was significant in that case is that the court said, um, by a majority on uh, obiter dicta, which means that it wasn't, um, it's not a binding principle, but, it, but obviously very persuasive authority, it said that they did think that there was a breach of Article 8 of the European Convention. So what happened following that case is that uh, Sarah Ewart then took a case to, to the High Court in Belfast and she challenged the law on the grounds of fatal fetal abnormality. And Sarah Ute, obviously you remember, she she had gone to an abortion for England um, to do with her own pregnancy when when her the, the, the baby had a fatal fetal abnormality. And she she brought that challenge. And again, I, Attorney General John Larkin argued that that she she should have taken the case back when she was um pregnant basically but the judge disagreed and she thought no that was too restrictive and she she found that there was um an incompatibility with the article 8 of the european convention but significantly she didn't make the declaration so that's the declaration under the human rights act and she declined to do that because of the law changes that are coming so she could make the declaration at a later date and she invited submissions from the parties really so it's it's really the most recent case law has really been very significant in pushing this along and there's also been a couple of cases it was again something that was discussed here but actually hadn't happened about women being prosecuted over abortion pills but it actually has happened in northern ireland correct Yes, it has. Yes. So there's a, there's a case called JR76 and that was for um, a judicial review for a woman who bought abortion pills for her 15 year old daughter um, who is um, who was then to be prosecuted. So that uh, we're still awaiting judgment on that one. But I think obviously the recent law changes that are going to come through are obviously going to impact on that. You mentioned um, when you were speaking earlier about, um, and just on a technical question to explain to our listeners, you mentioned primary legislation for Westminster can't really be undone um, by Stormont. How is that or, or why does it operate in such a way? It's it's basically just if, if an act of parliament if it's passed by Westminster, um, it can't really be amended by the devolved institutions. They can't amend the act, but obviously abortion is within the devolved remit of the Northern Ireland Assembly. So I suppose there is there is the possibility that the assembly could legislate on this issue after these these this legislation has been passed, but it, it cannot amend an act of, of the Westminster Parliament. It can't do anything at the moment, Christine, because <laughs> it's not it's it's no one no, can because they're not sitting. They're not sitting. Yeah, they're not sitting. So we did this. So we there's not a lot happening there. <laughs> it's not happening. So, but it, it, obviously, if it comes back at a later stage, you know, um, it, as I said, you know, they, they can't amend that 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 act, whatever whatever it is brought in, but they can obviously that they, they do. It is within the, the devolved remit of the Assembly to legislate on abortion. Uh, can we just go back to why Northern Ireland doesn't have an Assembly, Christine? So it's basically down to irreconcilable differences between Sinn Féin and, and the DUP. Throughout 2016, there were there were these simmering problems between the two parties and it was over specific issues. There was an Irish Language Act, which Sinn Féin wanted to bring into Northern Ireland, which the DUP opposed, um, but also issues around same-sex marriage and how to and whether investigate killings that took place during the Troubles. And this all came to a head at the end of 2016 over the cash frash scandal, which involved uh, DUP leader uh, Arlene Foster. And so in January 2017, Martin McGuinness resigned. And at the time, he was the Deputy First Minister for Northern Ireland. And under power sharing, you've got a First Minister, you've got a Deputy First Minister, one 
one nationalist, one unionist. They have equal powers, but you can't have one without the other. So when he resigned, when he stepped down, Sinn Féin wouldn't put forward somebody to replace him. And so elections were held for the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, in March 2017. In these elections, uh, the DUP came out on top. Sinn Féin were just one seat behind, but no assembly was formed. And so that's March 2017, two years and seven months ago. And... Since then, there have been so many attempts. There have been attempts to get everybody sitting down and talking and trying to get an assembly formed from this. Um, but it, just, it hasn't happened. And uh, obviously, it's a major source of frustration for people in Northern Ireland who voted in these elections. And then to have this just not happen. Was there ever a school of thought that this would be the thing to break the impasse, that the DUP, the SDLP, somebody would care so much that Westminster were um, legislating on this issue that they would actually get themselves together and set up the Assembly again. Arlene Foster actually spoke about that this week. She came out on Wednesday and she said she wants to see the Northern Ireland Assembly recalled before Monday, specifically so that the, uh, she said, um, so that the extreme liberalisation of our abortion law doesn't go ahead. Um, And so that was really interesting. She was saying that she wants to see this happen. She was saying that her MLAs will return to the chamber without precondition, but it was met with kind of almost stony silence from from the other parties in Northern Ireland. Uh, The only thing that Sinn Féin said about it was from Michelle O'Neill, who said Said, who called Arlene Foster's call, said what Arlene Foster had said was a pointless political stunt. Uh, the SDLP leader Colm Eastwood said, you know, it wasn't quite as power as strong as that, but it was almost as strong. He said that it was it was shallow choreography. He said the DUP was trying to get themselves off the hook for three years of irresponsible behaviour. So there was kind of a sense that she was saying this, but it wasn't actually. It was a little bit too little, too late. Sarah, is there anything here that could change over the weekend that this won't actually happen come next week? Um, I think it would take a lot. Um, I think really what, what's required to bring the Assembly back is not only that all the, minister, the ministers all have to be in place in the executive and the office of first and deputy first minister has to be filled. And obviously for that to happen, the parties have to nominate um, their, their ministers to go forward from the two largest parties, which of course would be Sinn Féin and the DUP. Um, that seems very unlikely at the moment. Um, Sinn Féin, obviously, that they want a, 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 sta- a full standing Irish language act. The DUP don't appear to be budging on this. They've said that they've no preconditions for going back into the assembly, but they've always said that. They've continued to say that for a very long time. Um, I think it would take a miracle to get it back in at this point. Um, the Northern Ireland Office is really pushing them to try and get back. Um, many eyebrows raised about why the NIO was asking people to come back at this stage, but it looks at the moment like this is happening. Which is uh, so. Act- I think activists, I think, have a very close eye on all the political parties, and I, I think you know, if Sinn Féin were to do a deal, um, they would never be forgiven. I don't think activists would ever, would ever let them away with it. Is there anything else inventive that could scupper it? Is there anything else that members, uh, MLAs, or the DUP people who don't want to see this happen, is there anything that they can do to stop it? I don't believe so, really. Other than applying political pressure here, and, and, and unless that. They somehow persuade Boris Johnson's government to do something, and you know, get Parliament to act to try and stop this. You know, that we've got only got a couple of days to go, and and you know, we've got a Brexit deal. You know, I really <laughs> they're a bit busy. <laughs> I, I think they're a bit busy. I think the clock has run down. Um, but as I was saying earlier, there will there will be people in the DUP um who will be very happy. I suspect to see this passed because then it's done, and I I I can't really see anybody making a move over the weekend especially with everything going on with Brexit at the moment. Uh, so what are the practicalities then? This this happens on the 21st of October. When will we actually see um, abortion being accessible to women in Northern Ireland in Northern Ireland? Well basically from, from October 22nd, so that's the day after the 21st deadline, basically the government has recently issued guidance for health professionals and that's, that gives us a picture of what's going to, what the, the lay of the land is going to be from October 22nd to the 31st of March 2020. 
Um, what happens after that is still a bit of an unknown, but from October 22nd, they're going to repeal uh, Sections 58 and Section 59 of the Offences Against the Person Act. Um, there's going to be a moratorium on prosecution, so um, that's going to have an impact on that JR 76 case I was talking about earlier. That's the abortion um, pills case. Yeah, that's the, yeah, the abortion pills case, yes. Um, there's going to be, health professionals are going to be given information about services in England, and, and what is going to be very significant is they're going to be able to give um, and women information about how they can get access to abortions in England. Um, all travel and accommodation is going to be funded. Um, there's going to be no obligation on health professionals to report an offence if a woman takes her abortion pills. So I mean, the situation up to now has very much been, um, you know, if a woman appears that there's that there is that duty to report. So there's been a sort of don't ask, don't tell policy. I, I think in some parts of the country, but um, there is there's no plans at the moment for additional services uh, to be routinely available. Um, there's no expectation that GPs will prescribe medication for abortion pills because obviously that there's they're regulated by medicines rec- uh, legislation. Um, there's the possibility that um, they may doctors may carried abortions for fatal fatal abnormality but it's not guaranteed but there is going to be a public consultation and then there's going to be a legal framework so I think that they're hoping that that will be in place by next year um but obviously they the the current um they've said that the current framework that they've got in place so this is the the from March from uh, October till March next year that that may continue until the government is satisfied that that the law um meets the needs of women basically so um once that legal framework comes in we're not sure um how it's going to look obviously they they will the, the law will only be able to provide for um fatal, fatal abnormality and um, rape and incest because that was what was in the CEDAW recommendation so w- we don't know what if they will maybe copy the Republic and have maybe the 12 weeks because obviously I think uh, other countries have tried um, to to legislate around um, rape and incest and it's very difficult to do so so the hope is that this will be in place by next year but we're just going to have to see what happens and what happens with the public consultation and is there any um is there any indication, just quite conscious that the Republic of Ireland's um, schemes and, and access schemes are, is, are a lot different to those of the UK? Is it, there's a lot more clinics in the UK here. It's a more GP-led scheme with hospitals also being involved in, in abortion services. Is there any indication of what the people of Northern Ireland would prefer to see? There's not, no. I think that's probably going to come out during the consultation. Um, I imagine that, that you know, some reflecting maybe what the Republic is doing may be the most preferred option, I think, but I, I really it's really unclear at the moment what people would prefer to see. Obviously, you know, there would be some people here that, that, that want us to replicate the 67 Act, but um and obviously that some activists would think differently about that. Um so it it's just not clear at the moment what we're looking at at the moment and we're just gonna have to wait and see. Thanks so much Sarah and Christine for explaining and giving us those history lessons. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Sarah and Christine for all their work on this episode. Just a reminder before we go about another podcast from thejournal.ie. Stardust, a six-part special, looks back on St. Valentine's Night in Dublin 1981 where 48 young people lost their lives in a nightclub fire. Hearing from the bereaved, the first responders and those who have been fighting for justice ever since, reporter Sean Murray and the team ask, how did Ireland handle such a tragedy? And was much of what happened in the four decades since dictated by class? Find Stardust, a podcast by thejournal.ie, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and if you are enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.